Hi, Maria Purissima. As usual, the quotes are edited and cut and pasted. We'll be relying principally on the work of Father Cornelius Lapide, his great commentary, St. Thomas, Father Charles Garside, Dr. Tim Gray, and commentary from Ignatius Press Study Bible. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine in the sun, and his garments became white as snow. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elias talking with him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today we'll go through the Gospel line by line, adding commentary as we go. So let's get started. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh unto him Peter and James and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. Where did this happen? Those great doctors of the church, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, St. John Damascene, the Venerable Bede, and other theologians explicitly teach that Christ was transfigured on Mount Tabor. Why did Christ bring Peter, James, and John as witnesses? The great doctor of the church, St. Dam Damascene, states, quote, He took Peter, wishing to show him that the testimony which he had borne was confirmed by the testimony of the Father, because he was about to become the visible head of the whole church. He took James, because he was about to die for Christ. He took John, because he was, as it were, the most pure instrument of theology, that beholding the glory of the Son of God, which is not subject to time, he might declare, in the beginning was the Word. Close quote. The great doctor of the church, St. Hilary of Poitiers, says that the three men who were taken up symbolize the future selection of the people of God from a threefold origin. The sons of Shem, the sons of Cam, and Ham, and the sons of Japheth. Of course, those are the three sons of Noah. That great doctor of the church, St. Anselm, states that these three apostles denote that those whom God considers worthy above others to behold the vision and the glory of himself are of a threefold order. Peter denotes the fervent in charity, for he was ardent in that virtue. John, a virgin, signifies virgins. James, the first martyr among the apostles, denotes those who suffer and martyrs. Again, Peter stands for those who are rocks, that is, strong and constant in faith and virtue. John stands for the chaste. James, the supplanter, stands for those who tread on vices and trample them underfoot, for such are worthy of the vision of God. Verse 2, And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as snow. What was Christ doing here? Cornelius Salapide, quote, Christ showed his apostles the external glory of his body, which was an indication of his divinity, that by it, as through a chink, they might in some way behold the glory and majesty of his Godhead, even though veiled by the body. The fathers teach that Christ did not transfigure himself before the three apostles so as to manifest his divinity to them, as he does to the saints in heaven, which is their blessedness. For the divine nature cannot be held by any means with eyes of flesh. Close quote. Why did Christ do this? 
The great doctor of the church, the common doctor, St. Thomas states, quote, Christ wished to be transfigured in order to show men his glory and arouse men to a desire of it. Now men are brought to the glory of eternal beatitude by Christ, not only those who lived after him, but also those who preceded him. Consequently, it was fitting that witnesses should be present from among those who preceded him, namely Moses and Elias, and from those who followed after him, namely Peter, James, and John, that in the mouths of two or three witnesses this word might stand. Close quote. Cornelius Elapide lists more reasons why Christ our Lord was transfigured. First, that by means of this glory and brightness, and by the testimony of Elias and Moses, he might prove his divinity to his apostles and show that it was hidden or veiled underneath his humanity. Two, that he might forewarn his disciples not to lose confidence when they should behold him nailed to the cross on Mount Calvary. Three, according to those doctors of the church, St. Ephraim of Syria, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, St. John Damascene, and St. Basil the Great, that Christ might indicate that he will come again in this manner with great power and majesty to judge the world. Therefore, Elias also appeared, who will be the precursor of Christ when he comes to judgment. Four, that he might elicit and increase the faith and hope and courage and zeal of the apostles and the rest of the faithful to undergo bravely for the sake of the gospel whatever trials and crosses may come in the hope of obtaining a similar glory at the resurrection. What prophet in the Old Testament should we be reminded of by the line that his face did shine as the sun? Moses. As St. Hilary of Poitiers points out, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai after the glory of the Lord appeared to him and after he received the tablets of the law, his face was radiant with light, as we can see in Exodus 34. But in the case of Moses, this splendor came from without, whereas the glory of Christ was from within. Verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias, talking with them. Why were Moses and Elias present? Elias is also known as Elijah. The great doctor of the church, St. Augustine, states, quote, Moses signifies the law. Now let's pause uh, here for a moment to make sure we all know what it means to say that Moses signifies the law. Moses, who as we all know, led the people of Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus. He led them out of that slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, and led them during their 40 years of wandering the desert. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and brought down the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. Moses is also the inspired author of the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books are also known as the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is a Greek word that means the five books. Those five books are known as the Pentateuch, the Law, or the Torah. The Torah is a Hebrew word for those books. So Moses is called the Lawgiver. He brought the Ten Commandments down from God. He brought the Law down from God. And he's the inspired author of the first five books of the Bible. Again, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which those books are also known as the Pentateuch, the Law, or the Torah. 
So St. Augustine states, quote, Moses signified the law, Elias signified the prophets, well, the gospel is signified by the Lord. It was for this reason that these three appeared on the mountain, whereas he showed the glory of his countenance and clothing to the disciples, for he appeared in the middle, between Moses and Elias, as it were the gospel receiving testimony from the law and the prophets. Close quote. St. Thomas explains, quote, As St. John Chrysostom says, Moses and Elias are brought forward for many reasons. And first of all, because the multitude said that Christ was Elias, or Jeremiah, so one of the prophets, he brings the leaders of the prophets with him, that by doing so they might see the difference between the servants and their Lord. Another reason was that Moses gave the law, whereas Elias was jealous for the glory of God. Therefore, by appearing together with Christ, they show how falsely the Jews accused him of transgressing the law and of blasphemy, blasphemously appropriating to himself the glory of God. A third reason was to show that Christ has power over death and life, and that he's the judge of the dead and living, by bringing with him Moses, who had died, and Elias, who still lived. The fourth reason was because, as Luke says, they spoke with Christ about his passion and death. Therefore, in order to strengthen the hearts of his disciples with a view to this, he sets before them those who would expose themselves to death for God's sake, since Moses braved death in opposing Pharaoh, and Elias in opposing King Achab. A fifth reason was that he wished his disciples to imitate the meekness of Moses and the zeal of Elias. St. Hilary of Poitiers adds a sixth reason, namely in order to signify that Christ had been foretold both by the law, which Moses gave to them, as well as by the prophets, of whom Elias was the principal example. Close quote. Cornelius Lapidate, quote, Moses was the legislator of the old law, and Elias was the prince of prophecy and of the prophets, and therefore represents the whole choir of the prophets. These two appeared that they might show that Christ was the true Messiah, the Savior of the world, promised in the Law and the Prophets. According to those doctors of the Church, St. Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Ambrose, the Law is shown to harmonize with Christ by the presence of Moses, and prophecy is shown to harmonize with Christ by the presence of Elias. Furthermore, they also show that both the Law and Prophecy had accomplished their work, and therefore ended and had given place to Christ as the new lawgiver and prophet sent from God and promised by all the prophets, most especially by Moses, in those words we find in Deuteronomy 18.18. I will raise them up a prophet out of the midst of their brethren, like to thee, and I will put my words in his mouth. St. Jerome adds that Moses and Elias had merited this vision because like Christ, they had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Close quote. What were Christ, Moses, and Elias talking about? In chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, St. Luke records the topic of their conversation. Quote, And behold, two men talked to him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. That's the literal Greek word St. Luke uses there. Uh, they, they, behold, two men talked to him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Cornelius Elapidy explains, quote, They spoke of his exodus, his departure, that is to say, his death, the victory which Christ was to win over death and sin and Satan. 
Allusion is made to the deliverance, the exodus of Israel from Egypt, and the destruction of Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, which is a type of the deliverance affected by Christ for his people. St. Cyril thinks that by exodus we must understand his passion. Close quote. Now regarding this conversation, Dr. Tim Gray has some penetrating remarks. Dr. Gray, who could possibly be better to discuss the exodus with than Moses, the leader of Israel's first exodus. The events of Sinai are repeated during the transfiguration. The glory cloud of the Lord descends upon the mount, and the disciples, who like the Israelites of old, are afraid. On Mount Sinai, Moses' face was transfigured with the glory of God. Jesus' face also shines with glory, but even more than Moses, Jesus' whole appearance becomes dazzling white. Jesus outshines Moses. Jesus' transfiguration and glory is a revelation of his perfected and glorified humanity. Jesus reveals God the Father's desire to transform humanity into the likeness of divine glory. When Moses radiated God's glory, it was not a sign that Moses was divine, but rather that he was given the grace to share in God's glory. The events of Sinai are transfigured by the descent of glory upon our Lord on Mount Tabor. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the new Sinai, a new Torah, a new law is revealed. The new Torah, the new law, is not the word of God written on stone tablets, but the word made flesh. The voice from the cloud announces the new law, which is a person. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. On the new and greater Sinai, the Father reveals the Son. Jesus takes the place of the Torah. Jesus takes the place of the old law. Jesus embodies the law. The best way to know and understand the will of the Father is to look at and to listen to his Son. The command, listen to him, echoes the prophecy of Moses that one greater than he would come and give a new covenant in law. And Moses concluded the prophecy with the command that Israel listen to him. Jesus is that new and greater Moses. The conversation between Moses, Jesus, and Elijah concerns our Lord's exodus. The connection with Moses highlights how Jesus' mission is to be seen as a new exodus. The place for the exodus is Jerusalem. Shortly after this conversation, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, as is recorded in the Gospel of St. Luke. The reason is revealed on Mount Tabor. Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem to accomplish the new exodus. Close quote. What other parallels are there between our Lord and Moses? There are many. The notes of the Ignatius Study Bible point out a few. Quote, As the supreme lawgiver of the Old Covenant, Moses prefigures Christ, who gives the new law in the Sermon on the Mount. And in regards to transfiguration, there are also many parallels. Both the revelation of Moses and the transfiguration of our Lord occur on a mountain. During the revelation of Moses and the transfiguration of our Lord, Jesus and Moses each take three companions with them. During the revelation of Moses and the transfiguration of our Lord, the faces of both Jesus and Moses shine with God's glory. Both the revelation of Moses and the transfiguration of our Lord involve the glory cloud of the Lord's presence. Both the revelation of Moses and the transfiguration of our Lord involve God speaking with a heavenly voice. And finally, Moses bears witness to Jesus' greater glory at the transfiguration. 
where Jesus is showcased as a prophet like unto Moses. Close quotes. How did Moses and Elias get to Mount Tabor? Cornelius Elapidae. Quote, the soul of Moses was translated from the limbo of the fathers to earth by an angel. And when Moses was brought up to earth, St. Thomas states that an angel formed a body out of materials at hand so that Moses would be visible. Everyone agrees that it was Elias himself who appeared in his own body. For Elias was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire and is still alive. Then he come again and contend with Antichrist. From paradise, therefore, from the place to which he was translated, he was suddenly transferred by an angel to Mount Tabor, that he might talk to and witness Christ in his transfiguration. Close quotes. Could you please explain what it means to say that, that Elias was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire? In order to understand this, we need to take a moment to talk about heaven. Typically, when we hear the word heaven, we think of the boat of the angels, the saints, and God. But the ancient Catholics used the term heaven in a broader sense, as we can see in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 4, where St. Paul speaks of being taken up to the third heaven. He speaks in the third person, but he's speaking about himself. I quote from St. Paul, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Close quote. A man caught up to the third heaven? What is the third heaven? What's St. Paul talking about? Well, as we said, the ancient Catholics used the term heaven in a broader sense. They used the term to refer to three places, to three different levels. The first heaven is what we call the atmosphere. The second heaven is what we call outer space. And the third heaven is what we call heaven, okay? So that's what they meant. So the question about what it means to say that Elias was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire, that great doctor of the church, uh, whose feast day is today, St. Gregory the Great, explains that when it is said that Elias was taken up into heaven, this refers to the aerial heaven in which birds fly, which is why in Matthew 8.20 they are called birds of heaven. And Pope St. Gregory explains that Elias was carried up into this heaven so that he might be suddenly conveyed to some secret region of the earth where he would live in great peace of the spirit and the flesh until he returns at the end of the world and pays the debt of death. Close quote. St. Thomas states, quote, Elias was taken up into the atmospheric heaven, but not to the heaven which is the abode of the saints. Likewise, Enoch was translated into the earthly paradise. Close quote. Okay, so Enoch. Who's Enoch, and what does he have to do with Elias? Enoch is one of the patriarchs. He's the father of Methuselah. He's the great-grandfather of Noah. Centuries before the great flood, like Elias, he was taken up and translated somewhere. Cardinal Toledus, the 16th century Spanish theologian, says that the reason Enoch was not present at the transfiguration is because he lived before the law was given to the Jews. Elias and Enoch are now together somewhere, but at the end of the world, they will turn to battle the Antichrist. Elias will have a special mission to preach and convert the Jews, and Enoch will have a special mission to preach to and convert the Gentiles. That's always been stood of Elias. There was some debate among some of the ancient fathers as to the role of Enoch. And so it was one of the glories of the scholastic theologians to work this out in detail by sorting through the scriptures and the fathers. As the great doctor of the church, St. Robert Bellarmine states, quote, It is either heresy or proximate to heresy 
to deny that Enoch and Elias will personally return. Enoch and Elias are still living. When the Antichrist comes, they will oppose him and preserve the elect in the faith of Christ and convert the Jews. Close quote. So you can read about that. Those are the two witnesses in the Apocalypse, uh, chapter 11, verses 3 to 12. The great Spanish theologian Francisco Suarez states, quote, It is of the faith that neither Enoch nor Elias have ever died. Holy Scripture is explicit on this point. In Genesis 5.22, we read that Enoch walked with God and was seen no more because God took him. When Ecclesiastes 44.16, we read that Enoch pleased God and was translated into paradise, that he may be of repentance to the nations. And in Hebrews 11.5, we read that Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. Of Elias, it is declared in Ecclesiastes 48, 9, and 10 that he was taken up in a whirlwind of fire in a chariot of fiery horses and it is registered in the judgments of times to appease the wrath of the Lord, to reconcile the heart of the Father to the Son, and to restore the tribes of Jacob. By being registered in the judgments of times is to be understood that he is destined at some future period to appease the wrath of the Lord. Close quote. So parenthetically, anyone who realizes that both these men are alive, and they are, and you can see holy icons. I've seen Russian icons, ancient traditional icons, of them both together, and it's like in the mountains somewhere, so we don't exactly know where they are. We'll get to that in a minute. Anyone who realizes they're both alive shouldn't have any trouble at all with the ages of the patriarchs. After all, Elias was already almost as old as Methuselah at the time of the Transfiguration. That's pert near 2,000 years ago. And Methuselah's father is still alive and will be to the end of the world. Where are Elias and Enoch right now? Suarez thinks that Enoch may have lived in the original paradise until the Great Flood, and then after being in some way divinely kept from harm, he was transferred to a hiding spot, which may possibly be on the same site as that paradise that was destroyed by the waters. Wherever their abode may be, Suarez did not doubt, but that Enoch and Elias are intensely happy in their mutual friendship, and they live in a place with which, if it is not the paradise of Adam and Eve, is equally beautiful. We must believe that they are alive, but we can't be sure where they are right now. St. Augustine comments, quote, There are questions in regard to which, without any prejudice to that faith by which we are Christians, either there may be ignorance as to what is, what is the truth, and therefore any definitive judgment is suspended. Or we may make a guess, which on account of our human and frail misgivings may be inconsistent with fact. As for instance, when the question is raised as to the site of paradise, which God placed men after forming it from the dust, because the Christian does not doubt of the existence of paradise. Or when it is asked where Elias and Enoch are at this moment, for we doubt not that they are alive in their bodies in which they were born. Close quote. What have they been doing all this time? Suarez, quote, They have the delight of receiving immense consolations from God, divine illuminations and frequent revelations, at all events about those matters which are suitable to their condition. I doubt not that they knew of the coming of Christ and the completion of the world's redemption by him, because they had beforehand an explicit belief in his advent, for which they also had ardently yearned. And it was unbecoming that it should be left now in darkness and error. With regard to Elias, it is clear from the Gospel that he saw Christ at the Transfiguration. And we presume that Enoch also has at some period beheld him. Close quote. Cornelius Adap Lapide continues, quote, It is credibly believed by some 
including St. Justin Martyr, St. Uranus, St. Isaphorus, and the doctor of the church, St. Bonaventure, that during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, Christ spent time with Elias and Enoch. Because the states of the status of Elias and Enoch almost demand this as a right, given that for the sake of Christ, their blessedness has been delayed and deferred for so many thousands of years while they remain living on earth instead of being able to go to heaven to contemplate and enjoy God like the rest of the saints. Christ visited so that at the very least they might receive from him the mission they will carry out at the end of the world when they come back to battle for the true faith against the Antichrist and then die as martyrs for Christ. Close quote. Why are two men being sent as forerunners to herald Christ's second coming? Suarez states that when Christ first came to the world, his immediate purpose was to gather in his fold the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he had therefore only one forerunner who was a Jew, St. John the Baptist. But at his second coming, our Lord will send two forerunners, a Gentile and a Jew, Enoch and Elias, because then he will be coming not to the Jews specially, but to his universal church, gathered out of both Jews and Gentiles. But even after the transfiguration, weren't the apostles still confused as to the role of Elias? Yes, they were confused. We can see this actually in the verse immediately following today's gospel where we read, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elias must come first? Cornelius Lapide explains, quote, The reason for this question was that these three apostles had seen Elias in the transfiguration and then seen him going away. They are wondering why he departed when he ought to have remained and then become the forerunner of Christ in his glorious kingdom, according to the prophecy of Malachi, chapter, verse, chapter 4, verse 5, a prophecy quoted and taught by the scribes. Close quote. Okay, so at this point, Peter, James, and John know who our Lord is. That he truly is the Son of God, the Messiah. What they don't understand is how does Elias fit into this picture? So the apostles are wondering, why did Elias depart when he ought to have remained and become the forerunner of Christ in his glorious kingdom, according to the prophecy of Malachi 4, 5, and 6? And I'll read the prophecy. Behold, I will send you Elias the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Thus the book of the prophet Malachi. This is not confusing for us, since we read it as a prophecy which will be fulfilled at the end of the world, just before the second coming. For example, the Haydock commentary explains the meaning of Malachi's phrase, he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, as follows. Quote, By bringing over the Jews to the faith of Christ, Elias shall reconcile them to their fathers, that is to say the patriarchs and prophets, whose hearts for many ages have been turned away from the Jews because they're refusing to believe in Christ. Close quote. Okay, so for us it's easy to understand. Apostles are understandably confused since the scribes had explained things otherwise. Cornelius Elapide, quote, For the scribes did not distinguish between the first and second coming of Christ, even as now the Jews fail to do so. For they deny that Christ has come and are expecting him as still about to come because Elias has not yet appeared to point him out. Close quote. So our Lord responds to the confusion of the apostles by answering, Elias indeed shall come and restore all things. But I say to you that Elias has already come, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they had a mind. 
So also shall the Son of Man suffer for them. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them of John the Baptist. So the Lord clears up their confusion by identifying John the Baptist as the type or the foreshadowing of Elias, as the one who had come in the spirit of Elias. At this time, then, the apostles can see that the literal and true Elias will be the forecomer and forerunner in the second coming. Why then, when the Pharisees asked St. John the Baptist if he were Elias, did he answer no? Because the object of the Pharisees was not to find out the truth of the situation, but trap him in his words. So St. John answered them truly in their sense of the name. He was not literally Elias. Because of their wickedness, he didn't explain himself any further. Cornelius Lapidate, quote, It was not because Elias had not yet come that the Jews persisted in not believing him to be the Messiah, but because they were perverse and obstinate in their wickedness. For that Elias had already been promised before Christ's first advent, namely St. John the Baptist, had already come, had already pointed out Christ to the scribes that he was the Messiah, but they wouldn't believe John. Therefore Christ adds, and they knew him not, that is to say they refused to recognize that St. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Christ. But they have done unto him whatsoever they had a mind. That is, when he reproved their vices, they hated and persecuted him, delivered him up to Herod, who sought his life, and ultimately killed him with their approval. Close quote. Our Lord closes his explanation with the observation that he too will suffer from the same man that killed St. John the Baptist. Is there any particular reason the Jews will listen to Elias when he returns? Both Elias and Enoch will have the power to confirm their preaching with spectacular miracles. Cornelius Lapid explains that at the end of the world, Elias will have the same power he had in ancient times to call, cause fire to fall from heaven, devour the enemies of God, both by means of his prayers and simply by his command. They'll also have to, the power to simply close the heavens and stop rain at will, just like Elias had in the olden days. They'll also be given the power which was given to Moses in his battles against Pharaoh, turn the waters into blood, strike the earth with any sort of plagues with which they wish. Interestingly enough, even in our day and age, the devout Jews are still on the lookout for Elias. Uh, in fact, last night they prayed to God to send Elias. Now I checked uh, with an Orthodox Jewish friend who's being moved by the Lord. Now please pray for him, and especially his wife and children, because it's a miracle uh, for somebody like this to convert. But he, he now believes Our Lady is Our Lady and the Ark of the Covenant, that Christ is the Lord and all that. But there's complicated things getting out of that and, and extracting his kids and wife at the same time. Anyway, Elias is invoked on Saturday evening in the ceremony that concludes the Sabbath day. During the closing hymn, they ask God to send Elias during the following week. And I quote, Elijah the prophet, Elijah the Tishbite, let him come quickly in our day with the Messiah, the son of David. Close quote. Not only that, but he's also invoked in his, in his role as the forerunner of the Messiah during the Jewish grace after meals. In the Jewish grace after meals, they pray, May the merciful one send us Elijah the prophet, may be remembered for good, and he will inherit for us tidings of goodness, salvation, and comfort. Close quote. Verse 4. And Peter answering said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. Cornelius Lapide asked, quote, Why did Peter desire that these three tabernacles should be made, since the blessed do not need dwellings? And he answers, quote, Peter said this towards the close of the transfiguration, when Moses and Elias were about to depart, in order that he might keep them from leaving, close quote. What symbolic significance do these tabernacles have? During the Exodus, when the people of Israel were being led by Moses through the desert towards the Holy Land, 
They lived in tabernacles. Besides that, the Jews believed that in the days of the Messiah, the just men would dwell in tabernacles. One author comments, The manifestation of the glory of Jesus appears to Peter to be the sign that the times of the Messiah have arrived. And one of the qualities of those messianic times was to be the dwelling of the just, the tent signified by these huts. Close quote. So the tabernacles are a reminder that during the first Exodus, Moses led the people of God from the satanic kingdom of Egypt through the desert to the very border of the Holy Land. And they're also a reminder that Christ has set out on a spiritual exodus to lead the people of God from the satanic bondage to sin and devil into the freedom and joy of their true and eternal Holy Land, heaven. Verse 5, And as he was yet speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a low voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Why was the cloud bright? St. John Chrysostom and St. John Damascene explained the cloud was bright to signify the difference between the old law and the new law. In the old law, God appeared to the Hebrews in a black cloud because that law was full of shadow and terrors. In the new law, he appears in a bright cloud because the new law brings truth, glory, and love. What is the significance of the word overshadow? The Greek word for the overshadowing the cloud is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit overshadowing Our Lady on the Annunciation. What is the significance of the voice from the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Cornelius Lapide explains that the words, Hear ye him, does not pertain to, quote, Moses, who has gone away, but to Christ himself, as the new lawgiver of the new law. Hear ye and believe ye, and obey his commands in all things. There is an allusion to Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses said about Christ, The Lord thy God will raise up to thee a prophet of thy nation, of thy brethren, like unto me. Him thou shalt hear. These words hear him were not said of Christ as baptism, because then for the first time shown to the world. But here he was sent forth as a teacher and lawgiver. Therefore, as Tertullian, St. Leo the Great, St. John Damascene, and others maintain, these words denote the canceling of the old law and the commencement of the new law. Close quote. So the command to listen to him is a heavenly confirmation that Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. Quote, Jesus fits his prophetic description, and because his teaching is backed by the approval and authority of the Father, he must be followed as Israelites once followed their leader Moses. Close quote. God himself made it clear that the prophet like unto Moses must be followed. And I quote from Deuteronomy chapter 18. I will raise up for you them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not give heed to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Close quote. Verses 6 to 8. And the disciples hearing fell upon their face and were very much afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said to them, Arise and fear not. And they, lifting up their eyes, said, No one but only Jesus. Cornelius Elagode, quote, This symbolized that the law and the prophets had disappeared now that Christ was present, yielding their place to him, and that only he remained who brought to man the true light of the gospel law. Verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell a vision to no man. To the Son of Man be risen from the dead. 
St. Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, and the Venerable Breeds that save it till, until after his resurrection, our Lord does not wish this to be preached among the people, lest the marvel of things seem incredible, lest the cross falling after so great a glory should seem offensive. There's a lot more that could be said, but we've gone through enough for today. Let's close. Today we've taken a closer look at the Transfiguration. We've seen that the presence of Moses and Elias, the Father's miraculous voice from heaven, the cloud of glory descending upon the mount, and the transfiguration of the Lord definitively reveals to the apostle the true identity of our Lord, and it confirms them in their faith. And although accepting for St. John, they don't completely respond to the grace he's given here, nevertheless, they're all very greatly strengthened by the upcoming death of our Lord. And they're given clear assurances that despite his death, his betrayal, his betrayal, his death, and apparent failure, he will ultimately triumph by means of his glorious resurrection.